You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 39 and we're your hosts, Brandon and Allison. And uh, how are you this week? I'm good. I've been busy. busy. How are you doing? Busy is good. Yeah, busy is good. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. And, and uh, actually as a little bit of a follow-up, um, I'm still fermenting that wild grape juice or wild grape wine, I guess, at, at this point. Um, I'm sure it's a little bit alcoholic at this point. I'm, I'm still uh, fermenting that, and it's still actively bubbling, so that's good. Um, that is good. And then, uh, but as follow-up to the 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 gritty crystals that cause some irritation uh, in the throat and mouth and lips, that stinging sensation or almost sore throat feeling that I was talking about, it's tartrates. Are you familiar with those? I, I am familiar with tartrates. Um, so like tartaric acid is, I don't know if it's the same thing or... It's the same thing. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's exactly the same thing. What I don't, and maybe you don't know, but I guess all as far as the reading that I was looking at, and and I got my information from the Foragers Harvest, the guide to identifying, harvesting, and preparing edible wild plants. I'll put that. Uh, it's by Samuel Thayer, and I'll put that in the in the show notes as well. And, um, and that book was the one that specifically said that all grapes have tartrates, but it's on a much higher scale. And again, I saw the tartrates; those those kind of gritty crystals. Well, it's not crystals really, but like a gray sludge at the bottom when I let it sit for a couple of days so that mm-hmm. I could pour that, uh, everything else off of that so that I wouldn't get the burning sensation. Um, hmm. are you familiar with tartrates causing a burning sensation or is it just because it's such a much higher level in the wild grapes that it causes that? It has to be, I, I, I've never heard of tartrates in general causing a burning sensation. So I would say, yes, you're right that it, because they are in such concentrated amounts, that's probably the cause of them. My familiar, familiar, familiarity, sorry, that was a hard word for me to say and get out. Um, I'm familiar with them mostly from, um, uh, red wines, um, and cold stabilization more so in, um, if a wine is not stabilized, right. Meaning it's not, um, it doesn't have the right kinds of acid base concentration to it. Uh, when your wine gets cold, say you put your wine in the freezer um, and then you pour out a glass, you do see those crystals that form in that form in it sometimes. Um, it's it's fairly common in, to see it in white wines, but you can get it in red wines. Um, and so that's what I'm familiar with of tartrates. So that was that was that's really interesting that it can cause a burning sensation when you eat them. I've never experienced that before. Yeah. And, and like I said, I've, exp- I, I reading this, I remember the first time I got wild grapes and I had that, that kind of burning sore throatish kind of feeling and a little bit at the corners of, of my, my lips too. And, and, um, I found somewhere else. I don't even remember where I was looking, but like someone's thought on why it was because I guess it can create a burning sensation on the skin as well. And so that was the recommendation for mashing these grapes with gloves on or washing hands very well right after Anytime there's skin irritation, I just generally put on gloves. I don't mind wearing gloves. So I, and so, um, and someone's theory that had no scientific backing, but their kind of concept of it, since it is those little gritty crystals that when, um, once they get under like into the skin and soak, then they more crystallize under it and kind of burn. And so I, that makes sense on a, a visual kind of way, but I don't think that I'm assuming that's probably not what's going on, but Either way, watch out for your tartrates in wild grapes. It sounds like uh, other grapes are fine. Yeah, it just must be that they just they produce a lot of tartrates and but I I've, I've that up and 
look at this book and read more about it because I didn't realize that that could cause a problem. To me, the tartrate problem in wine is more of just stabilization and having the the tartaric acid fall out of solution and creates those crystals. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I guess if anyone's uh, feeling a little masochistic masochistic and wants to experiment, just grab some tartaric acid and and put it in a glass and drink a bunch of it and maybe you'll be able to confirm or deny and send us an email at podcast at firmup.com and let us know, but don't, uh, don't try that at home unless you, unless you really want to. Yeah. Unless you're, unless you're into that kind of thing. Um, but like we had mentioned in the previous episode, we're just going to kind of continue the discussion we were having about industrial and commercial fermentation versus home fermentation. And we didn't really touch too much on the home side of things. So we'll probably get into that a little bit more as we wrap up this topic, but um, but the one thing that I, I, that, that my research kind of took me to that I want to make sure we, we get into is, uh, is African indigenous beers. And the reason why I like that as a, as part of our topic in this is because it's something that has been industrialized uh, or at least been on a larger scale is created in factory kind of settings. So industry, there's an industry for it, but for the most part, it's something that has also remained very much so a home based ferment process. The other reason why I find it interesting is because like, yeah, last time we focused a lot on soy sauce and uh, that's something that everyone kind of knows in one form or another. And African indigenous beers are something that a lot of people don't probably have much familiarity with if at all. And so again, it's another one of those things where, Hey, you can ferment it at home because it's been done for at least hundreds of years in parts of Africa. So it's definitely something that anyone can, can, get a hold of all the ingredients they need and, and make it at home. So maybe at the end, I mean, I'll put a link in the show notes too, for, for directions on how to make that. But, um, are, are you familiar with, with your background, um, with something that's, that's more wild fermented like this, these African indigenous beers with made with uh, sorghum millet or, or, uh, or corn. Um, from the, from the side of education wise, I didn't really, I mean, it was briefly talked about indigenous beers. Um, but it was mostly brought up because of, uh, the grains that are used to make it. They're very different types of grains that aren't necessarily grown here in the United States, like sorghum and and millet. Um, because those are gluten-free or they don't have the gluten protein in it. So a lot, there's more knowledge of it. And a lot more people are making African indigenous beers, at least locally in San Diego for the craft beer brewing scene. Um, because those two and, and maize as well, um, is popular. Those are gluten-free grains. I hadn't even thought about it in that sense. Now are people in your area or have you, I guess, have you tried these, any of these beers? I, I think I've had one, um, sorghum style beer. Um, I, it, what you would, uh, a normal beer or what we consider a normal tasting beer. Um, I do remember it being very sour. Um, and I, I personally don't like sour beers. So, but I think, isn't that a characteristic of African? Yeah. I mean, I, and, and that's why I want to try making it at home because I like the idea of, of sour, um, sour beverages and it's kind of more yogurt like in taste. And and that's what it's supposed to be. Now was, uh, were these ones that you tried or this one that you tried, was it um, really opaque as well? Or, or was it kind of clarified a little bit more, more Americanized? It was more Americanized style that they were trying to, to brew. Um, I want to say it was more of like a lager style or um, 
a lager style beer instead of using um, the traditional barley and that sort of thing. They had substituted millet, I think, or sorghum. I can't remember which one. Um, so I'm sure that was a huge difference, but it was um, clear in color. It was, um, I want to say like a hay straw color. Okay. And so that's really, it definitely has been Americanized from everything that, that I understand about these beers are, uh, th- these beers are, they're opaque and, and kind of almost a pinkish brown in color generally. And there, there's a lot of large quantity of solid particles from, uh, pretty much yeast suspended in the solution because it's, it's sold still actively from in its fermenting state. It's not pasteurized. Um, and it only really has a shelf life of one to five days. Huh. Interesting. I didn't know that. Um, that's Which, really cool because most beers here, they get, um, I don't want to say stabilized, but they're, uh, they're transferred and um, the yeast is not in the beer necessarily. I mean, they're Hefeweizen style beers. Um, There's still yeast in solution, but a majority of beers don't have that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely probably something to acquire a taste for, or acquire a liking for, and it's probably something to not even consider beer, even though it's called an indigenous beer. And even though it has an alcohol content, two to 3%, um, it's pretty low. Uh, it can go up to 8%, but generally it's, it's under three. Uh, uh, and and in that sense, it's sometimes referred to or thought of a bit like a food source because it does have nutrients and different things to it, and it is filling because it is mm-hmm. thicker and and has more substance to it. It's, I mean, you kind of think of it as like a thin gruel. Not that I think many of our listeners probably um, ingest gruel on a regular basis, but you know, I mean, it's it, you know like just that thick, uh, thin, um, weedy, oaty kind of. Uh, beverage that you can't see through. Mm-hmm. And um, is it kind of like the consistency of maybe, I don't want to say um, oatmeal because you have like the pieces of oats in it, but uh, like grits or some other really viscous um, grain that you drink? Well, yeah, um, that's traditionally. That's probably a really good way of looking at it to say oatmeal um, because again, I've never had gruel, but as far as I understand, even gruel is, is kind of take oatmeal and water it down. That's kind of what gruel is. So yeah, I mean, it's like, so if you, if you, if you water down oatmeal and then water it down a little bit more and make sure that you can't see through it, that's probably similar to what, what it looks like opaque quality wise and, uh, texture and thickness. Hmm. It's, it's, it's definitely, again, that's why I say, don't think of it as beer. And, uh, I think everyone should try making it just to see, because I, again, I like sour beverages. I like, uh, say, uh, when I think yogurt, like taste, it makes me think of Iran, uh, or I, um, I'm forgetting the pronunciation, I have it in my head, but, uh, the Iran, I think Aaron uh, is a fermented beverage. It's made from yogurt and it's watered down, add some salt to it and, and, uh, blend, mix that up and blend it up. And, and it's just a nice refreshing beverage in the summer, especially a salty, sour yogurt, uh, drink. And, uh, it kind of makes me think of that in some ways. Hmm. Or have, have you had kvass? Ooh, I don't know. Uh, probably not. <laughs> so kvass is not now a, a, mo- a lot of people know kvass as beet kvass. So as, uh, uh fermenting beets in, in salt water and then drinking the brine and a nice purplish beverage. That's uh, because kvass in Russian, as far as I understand, means something along the lines of sour beverage or, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's what kvass, uh, Bread kvass probably is rather similar in a lot of ways, uh, texture and taste wise for sourness level, at least because it's it taking a uh, stale rye bread, dicing that up, um, 
uh, and then adding and soaking that and letting that ferment in, in water and then straining out the, the solid pieces. But then it's, it's another opaque sour liquid and it has a mild alcohol content depending on how long it's been fermented as well. So in some ways it almost seems kind of similar to that, just a totally different process. Mm-hmm. Huh. Interesting. Um, so when you, um, indigenous beers and you're talking the sourness is that, do you know, um, if they're adding any type of bacteria or how are they getting it to be sour is it, or is it just the grain itself is naturally sour? Well, it's different than a lot. As far as I understand, a lot of other beer making processes, because there are two steps of fermentation. And so there is the lactic acid fermentation, which is creating that sourness, the same thing that's creating the sourness in any kind of fermented vegetables or many of the ferments that we, we, uh, enjoy, um, the lactic acid fermentation, and then it goes through an alcoholic fermentation. Oh yeah. That's, I mean, in, in brewing that, that, that can be somewhat stand. Oh, it is. Okay. So then, then what is to do a lactic acid fermentation first? I, again, it's all about how the style stylistically, what kind of fermentation you're doing. Um, but it's, I think most people in the brewing industry do the alcoholic fermentation first, and then they have the lactic acid fermentation. Okay. So it's different. So it seems like that there, there might be more fermentable sugars or nutrients for the, the microbes doing it first, then maybe that would create more sourness. Or again, it could just be because of, like you said, even though it was more of an Americanized beer that you had using different grains, um, would, would potentially create that sourness, uh, more likely as well. Um, and, and, just, I guess, looking at what they're, what they're doing. I mean, it's something that they've been doing for hundreds, uh, possibly thousands of years. It's really not known how long this kind of beer has been, been made, but it's so much a part of many parts in, in Africa that it's just something that was prepared by women for their families at one point. And, and then it started being, uh, some women would specialize and start selling it for cash, but it was still, it was still prepared in people's homes and then they'd sell it. Um, and then, even today, there's estimates that uh, up to 90% of home-brewed indigenous African beer is sold for cash. Uh, I mean, it's sold. It's 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 a part of the. Um, it's it's not necessarily made for home because it's generally not drank at home. It's drank in community events or funerals or different things, depending on what part of Africa a person's in. There's different communal events that that it's drank in uh, during work is another time that um during like uh working in mines or other or different places they'll drink some of this two to three percent alcohol while working too and um, hmm. well that's kind of similar to uh saison style beers um that you talking about it's being drunk during work um and i read a few months ago a really interesting article i'll i'll try to find it um again but um in the 1800s or 1700s, uh, French peasant farm workers, farmhands, was given an allotment of saison style beer to, I think it was like, oh man, I want to say it was like two or three liters, which is a lot of beer. Um, and they were allowed to drink it while they're working. And it's the same kind of low alcoholic um, alcohol content, like I want to say three to 5%, but they would drink it during the workday. So it's very similar in, in that respect with the African style beer. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure that different, there's probably other instances of that throughout history too. I mean, of something that, I mean, because there are a lot of these beverages that I, I don't have anything to really back this up, but I mean, there are a lot of these low alcohol beverages that are uh, refreshing and filling 
and can, can go well with something like that. And it's not really even necessarily as much about the alcohol at that point as it is just the sustenance. Mm-hmm. And it happens to be that that's delivered through the flavor is delivered through alcohol and fermentation. Well, and if you don't uh, filter out the yeast and stuff, I mean, again, you, you just mentioned this, but you did get a lot of extra nutrients and vitamins, um, through the yeast itself too. Um, lots of B vitamins, um, and the yeast have a lot are pretty hearty themselves. So yeah, I'm sure it's just a, another way to sustain life earlier when we didn't know much of, uh, food and food safety. Yeah. And, and I'm, well, I mean, thinking about, isn't that what a lot, some people use as nutrients, uh, brewer's yeast? I mean, wouldn't that be similar to what's that's being strained out and that's what people are using as a supplement of sorts? Yeah. It's, um, the same as like what Vegemite, isn't that what people in Australia eat, um, instead of peanut butter, um, I think they 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 eat it in England too or the UK, um, but it's the same thing. It's just brewer's yeast. Oh, okay. They, well, oh, mar- marmalite is that another mar- one? Maybe that's it. Marmite or mar- maybe it's marmite. Vegemite. Marmite and Vegemite. They might There's be the same. Both, yeah, yeah. I think it's the same the same product, but two different names. Um, but that's what marmite is. It's, uh, just spent spent in the terms of it was already used. Um, brewer's yeast. So this has got the brewer's yeast still in it. And, yeah. uh, uh, and the interesting thing about this again is because, uh, there, there are multiple factors probably as to why it's remained something that's done at home, but the first attempts to turn it into a, to factory brewing were done in the early 1900s and, uh, and throughout history and in, up to current times, I mean, the things that they're doing are still the same. They're malting the, 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 the starch or they're, they're, they're malting the sorghum, the millet or the, the maize. And then they're adding a starch, which in a lot of parts regions, it's more maize that they're adding unmalted maize to that. And so they're, they're malting, they're souring, they're boiling, mashing, straining, and then they're doing the alcoholic fermentation. So that's really, there's not really a whole lot of differences with some other industries as well. I mean, that's kind of how it is. It's not really necessarily that much different. It's just the way that they do it is different, but it's with, when they started doing it factory brewing, they were still pretty much doing kind of the same kind of kind of thing uh, as as what people were doing at home, just on a different scale, a little bit larger scale. And and still today, most home brewers are making their own malt. Is that as much the case with your experience with uh, beer making, uh, home beer making in the United States? Are people making their own malt? Or are they usually purchasing it? Um, usually, um, home brewers can go and purchase malt. It's, it's pretty time consuming to make your own. Um, but there are still a lot of people that do, um, whole grain fermentations where you do create your own malt. It just depends on what kind of time you're willing to put into it. And it does take a little more skill. It's a little more advanced to use, um, grains and steep the grains and to create your own malt. Um, but when it comes to the malting process of um, baking the grains to get it to be able to use for the next step in the brewing process. Um, that's already done for you. Um, I, and I think a lot of, um, I'm, I'm, I think a hundred percent of the breweries already buy malted grains. So they're just creating, using the whole grains to create the liquid part, um, for the boiling and the mashing and that sort of thing. Which makes sense on a on a commercial side of thing, and and it's interesting how you say it's a, it's a more advanced uh, process of having to be or to to try and tackle that 
aspect of the brewing process as well and making known malt. And it's interesting how it's the opposite um, that most people are uh, home brewers in uh, parts of Africa that are still making this indigenous beer are that's generally what most people are still doing is they make their own malt, even though it, they could get it from, uh, I like the book that I was referencing. I'll put it in the show notes, but uh, they were calling them commercial maltsters. Um, <laughs> is, is that a common term stateside here? No, I've never heard of that term, but it's pretty yeah. funny. Yeah. So people um, that make malt occasionally, like a lot, sometimes in urban settings uh, that are probably a little disconnected from, uh, more disconnected from family or roots or, or different things of, of making those kind of things, they would purchase their, their malt from maltsters. And this, the book I was getting it from is a little bit older. I mean, it's uh, almost 10 years old. So maybe more people as generally happens with ferments and whatnot, people start to uh, purchase and, and cut corners a little bit. Um, not that it's an, a necessary corner that people can't cut. I mean, but it's just generally something that people are, that, I mean, people are still threshing their own grains, uh, to make for this, this beer. So it's, it's very, I guess, indigenous in many ways. It's, it's being done the same way in many ways that it was for a long time and, and doing the entire process. Yeah. And it's probably a matter of also, um, you know, if it's a family thing that you learn from your parents, um, it probably, it's probably not that hard to do all the malting yourself. Cause you learn it from your parents who learned it from their parents, who've learned it from their parents. And it's a generational thing and it becomes a tradition to, to know that's how, how to do it. Whereas here, I mean, brewing beer, um, was very popular up until prohibition. And then once prohibition happened, um, pretty much everyone stopped brewing beer and that, that the malt kind of probably stopped. And so we're learning how to do it. And I'm sure that in a few generations from now, we will be everyone who, not everyone, but that'll be something that Americans who are interested in brewing their own beer will start to learn to do and pass it on and again, create that generational flow. Um, That's kind of seems like the artisanal approach to things is recapturing old traditions and and questioning everything, I guess it's like, well, am I buying malt because it's not, doesn't make a difference. Or if I make it myself, do I have even more control over something? Again, I think artisanal sometimes is about choosing where a person wants to have control as opposed to just doing it, how it's generally been done since things have been cut off from tradition. And sometimes things don't necessarily make sense to, to do a certain way or, or otherwise. I mean, kind of like talking about soy sauces last episode, it doesn't necessarily make sense for people to do it unless they enjoy the process of it and, and, or that they can differentiate the taste and appreciate it enough to go through all the processes of making their own soy sauce. Um, whereas for going to some other kinds of things, home related, I mean, making yogurt at home or making sauerkraut at home, those are, are things that I appreciate the process and, Sometimes either it's a product that I can't get, like some of the like Vili or other uh, mesophilic yogurts generally aren't available a lot of times uh, in, in commercially. So at least stateside here. So that's something I'm doing at home because I appreciate the final product and it's something I can't get otherwise. And, and same with sauerkraut. Uh, I, I like being able to eat it through its fermentation process from relatively fresh to once it's been longer. So for those ones, those ones, especially those are things I could not get very easily or things that aren't accessible commercially. And so for me, a lot of home ferment stuff is experimentation and then also access. 
if I can't access it, like if I couldn't get malt and I wanted to make indigenous beer or any other kind of beer, I'd have to make it myself. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think I, it's funny that you've mentioned um, different types of mesophilic yogurts because pretty much American standards, yogurt is, um, you know, one type of yogurt and you can't have any type of variation and it has to be, you know, American standards, or it has to be this consistency, but there's so many different ranges of yogurt and you can't necessarily get those at the grocery store. Probably a few different types of styles of yogurt that are popping, um, popping up now. But, um, a lot of the ones that you that you talk about, um, are very specific to a certain region of the world and it's not very common here. So you have to learn through generations of practice from listening to other people, um, and reading books and, and whatnot to figure out how to make it yourself. Well, and, and for me, that's kind of the, the great thing about fermenting at home and, and getting beyond uh, just what's available or what industry or market decides is, is a value. And uh, I mean, because yeah, like say some, even what we're talking about now with this African indigenous beer, it's probably nothing that any time in the next few hundred years is going to become something that is popular uh, to the palates of the mass market in the United States. It could, I could be completely wrong, but it just, it's something uh, like you said, you didn't, you didn't even necessarily really like that sour, sour taste to it. And, and again, this could be different because again, that was still more of a beer and this is less of a beer and more of a, a thin porridge of sourness mm-hmm. that's drinkable. And I like drinkable yogurt. So, I mean, I, it's, it's a lot of it is decided based on what kind of heritage there is for these different foods. And, and I think that's another awesome reason to ferment things at home um, is just in regard to not losing these, the knowledge around how to do these things. Like you're talking about people stop, uh, stop creating their own malt and doing different, making home uh, brew beer after prohibition. And, and, and a lot of traditions have been lost since people came to the United States and, and then uh, traditions are being lost throughout the world based on globalization and the access to industrialized food. There's a lot of benefits to industrialized food. And like we talked last time again about soy sauce, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, and sometimes it's a nice convenience, but other times there's, there's a whole world of taste profiles out there that are to a large population of people completely irrelevant. It's something that they don't understand. They don't have any connection to. Uh, whereas I think the more kinds of things that I can taste, it's also, again, something I'm interested in. But for people that are interested in food, there's a whole world of flavor out there that, like this African indigenous beer, uh, is is something that people could not get a taste for with anything that they could buy locally, or most likely. You have to get it from someone. Maybe there's, I'm sure there's plenty of people making African indigenous beer in the United States, but it's probably not being sold at a a commercial establishment. So I, again, another reason why I think home fermentation does make sense in a lot of ways. And that's my, that's my rant for home fermentation. (laughs) No, I think I, I'm completely on page and, um, with pretty much everything that you've said, it's a lot of home fermentation is to me, um, something that is, passed down from generation to generation or from your neighbor to you. And, um, you had, in the last episode when, before we started talking about fermentation, you were talking about how you recently just planted, um, some artichokes in your backyard that you're going to use to ferment and, um, make other things from them and stuff. So it's, it's kind of a, I don't want to say a pride thing, but it's more of just like, look what I can do. I can grow my own food and I'm able to be sustainable by myself. 
Um, and a lot of people in the U S are starting to follow that route. I think, um, I mean, I could be completely wrong, but I feel like people in the fifties, like our, our parents, um, generation, it was, I don't want to say not, um, not frowned upon, but industrialized food was so easy. Everything was so easy just to go to the store and buy it because their parents had to work really hard to be able to grow the grain, to make the flour, to bake the cake that for your birthday, whereas you can just go and buy it. But I think our generation, um, people that were born in the eighties and nineties, um, they are looking back on what their grandparents used to do and kind of try to recapture what might have been lost if we didn't do it or have an interest in it. Well, I think also when you talk about, say, that 1950s stereotype, at least, I mean, I, it's how it seems, at least to me as, as well, that perspective of, of everything going away from traditions and into industrialized food and how easy it was and different things of that nature. I think in my mind, at least a lot of it just comes down to curiosity. I mean, the same curiosity in industrialized foods and in, in that I, I wouldn't say that the convenience was necessarily an, a laziness because it was new. It was something that uh, there probably was a lot of laziness involved. And I think hum, that's the curiosity and laziness are both things that humans are, are, are good at, at capturing. And, but I, I like when I just look at the positive side of it, industrialized food was a, a, a very curious and new novel thing. And so it makes sense that people would be uh, going to that. And, and now that's not new anymore. It's old and even new things that are coming out of it. A lot of times it's not novel in the general public's mind. It's just, okay, there's another new industrialized food product. And so now people are there. There's at least a movement towards and has been for a long time, even very freshly after all that industrialized food became a thing. It's like now there's, there's people that are just curious again because we have to relearn these things now um, because they haven't been passed down and it probably wouldn't be as curious if, if our grandparents were just telling us all these things and it was the same thing that their grandparents. Had. I, I don't know. I, I don't know where it comes in because then you have something like this in African indigenous beer that's, that has had a lasting power. And maybe that just has to, something to do with, um, differences in society and in way things communities work in different parts of the world. Um, that something like this is at the lasting power and the ability to remain a very, very simple product and, and something that people still appreciate. Well, do you know if maybe, um, if there are other cultures, well, I guess like in, in European cultures, I mean, when it comes to, um, winemaking again, going back to winemaking, um, in France, I mean, that's your, you own a vineyard and your father owned that vineyard before you and your grandfather owned it before him. And so you're learning a generational technique that way. Um, so maybe it's just in the United States because we're such a melting pot of different cultures. And, um, I don't want to say being embarrassed of where you come from, but maybe it's just kind of things have been put to the wayside and just not seen as important, um, as fermented foods is then then to fit into American culture. Well, yeah, I think that it definitely probably has, has to play with it. I mean, it's kind of one of those things where, um, even in Europe, like you're talking about with these, these wine uh, vineyards being passed down from generation to generation, it's still a very insular product as in not everyone's generally making, making wine. And, and I think in parts of Europe, that's something that's probably been lost as well, because I know that in lots of parts of Europe, people grow their wine grapes and then make maybe a simple table wine or something kind of like I'm making my wild grape wine. And Mm -hmm. 
so uh, it's something where it's like, I mean, I think even in the United States, we've got things like different cheeses or different things like that, different uh, family products that have been passed down from generation to generation. We still have that in the United States in different places. And it may mean it's not as long of a, uh, a, of a hand down uh, from generation to generation, just because the United States is a little bit younger than parts of, of Europe or most of Europe. And, and so, yeah, it's one of those things that is, does it, it, it's available and possible to find examples, I think everywhere of things having been passed down, but yes, in the, as a whole, I'd say United States has kind of shunned those kind of things. It's, it's, it's kind of that, I don't know, a young country, that kind of that teenage mentality of it's like, well, um, it seems that that's kind of, yeah, that's, that's what the older generations did. We can do things better. Yeah. It's just something that I was thinking of, um, you know, listening to you talk about indigenous African beers and how it is passed down from generation to generation. Um, I mean, I grew up in the Midwest and never, we would home can things, which is different than, um, fermentation, but we, you know, making sauerkraut or making any type of fermented foods was something that I was never taught as a child or any sort of importance was put on it. I think my grandparents may maybe did a few fermented foods and some simple yogurt, some that sauerkrauts, that sort of thing. But it was never something that was um, really important um, or stressed upon in my family. Well, and, and I think too, that uh, with the passing down, like you're talking about canning, I mean, you got that passed down to you. And at one point there, there wasn't the technology of canning. So at some point canning replaced other forms of preservation, uh, for, for previous generations a long time ago. And so people lost other kinds, be it dehydrating or, or fermenting. I mean, uh, the, different technologies replace other technologies and, and eventually people go back or some people don't stop doing the, I mean, fermentation is kind of a natural process, but it is a technology in the way we kind of harness it. So it's just technology replacing technology and then people coming back around and realizing they don't want certain technology or that they, there still is something of value in something that other people didn't no longer found value in. Mm -hmm. Well, did you, as a, as a kid, did you ever, did your parents ever teach you any types of fermentation or how did you really dive into, um, home fermentation? Well, for me, it was more of just a going back to the thing about humans being curious. I mean, for myself, that's kind of really where it comes from. It's just I'm just curious. I like to try new things, especially when I realize that it's something that's possible to do. And so, you know, for me doing yogurts and sauerkrauts, it's like, oh, I can do that at home myself. And I was never even a huge yogurt fan or a huge definitely wasn't a huge sauerkraut fan. But the fact that I could make something that other, I otherwise didn't realize I can make as soon as I realized how simple it could be. That's what kind of hooked me. And again, through wild fermentation uh, book by Sander Katz, that's really kind of, kind of was that gateway into it. It's like, Oh, I can, I can make all this stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's simple. And so for myself, it was the curiosity that then led into all these other aspects that we're especially touching on in this episode about, you know, why these kind of traditions are important why home fermentation is fun, exciting, and something new and, and, and novel and something great to do with a family. Otherwise, things like that, um, you know, and, and it's a great way to have a little laboratory of sorts, uh, experiments and, and doing all kinds of things that relate to science and taste and culinary aspects. I mean, because I think fermentation for myself is just because there's so many different avenues of, of curiosity that can, can be touched upon and so many different flavors and so many from drinks to food. 
And so for myself, that's really where uh, things kind of, and, and I guess that's also why it's also important to me that even if I were to purchase all of my ferments from either an artisanal place or a industrial place for myself, my kind of personality, I'd still like to know how it's made even more. So if it's an artisanal product, I feel like it, since there is more access and appreciation and marketing to a certain extent by artisanal creators of food that, that emphasize the process. And that's what I uh, also lean toward. I, I want to know what all the processes of everything I do are. And, uh, down to the computer that we're, you know, talking through and different things like, so I just, I, I have those kind of interests and I'm a, as far as I understand, your interest really kind of came out of your education. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I, I've always had some lots of interest in um, how food is made and always wondering like, why is milk white and why does corn grow like this? And just from the standpoint of agriculture, um, it led me to get a degree in food science and when I was sitting in class, cause again, it, this was my family never put a, we would, we always had a farm. I grew up on a farm and so we had uh, crops and cows and pigs and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we would just eat, um, or, um, raise, but we would never preserve it in a way besides just canning, um, like corn, like freezing corn and canning green beans and, um, that sort of thing. Um, so it just led me to think of, well, how do you make yogurt? Um, and just lots of other foods that I didn't know how they made, which led me to get my degree in food science that led me to, you know, the cornucopia of learning everything about food and, um, looking at it from a science standpoint. Um, you know, I think one of the things I specifically remember in fourth or fifth grade or something like that, and someone came in to talk to us about um, chicken eggs and, um, you know, what a chicken egg looks like inside. If you were to open it, um, you know, all attached to the yolk and the albumin and stuff like that. And that was really what st- sparked my interest. And then the fermentation side was just kind of an extra bonus of just wanting to learn more about fermentation, how those foods are made. And there's so many fermented foods out there that I, you know, every day I learn something new, like. I mentioned in the last episode, I had no idea that hot sauce was even fermented. Well, yeah. And that's why we were able to have a podcast on fermented foods because there's not, there's, there is no end to the possibilities of things that we could talk about. And, and, and I, and I would really say that, especially this, this episode and this last one, I mean, we're kind of getting a little bit deeper into things that aren't, we aren't necessarily always thinking about as general eaters or even fermenters. I mean, there's, there's way, there's, there's an entire rabbit hole to be explored uh, regarding fermented foods and home fermenting is definitely a way to do that on a much different, I guess for me, home fermenting is again, one of those fulfilling things too. It's just, it's, uh, it's fulfilling on many different ways, not just food, not just preservation. It's the exploration. Yeah. I, I mean, the science side behind it and trying to figure out, um, you know, the best temperature to keep everything at versus do I need to um, lower the pH and all of these different things that you can do to manipulate the fermentation to get an end product that um, is desirable to you and to your family is really interesting. It's really neat. I, I think that we 
did a pretty good job of of pumping up the 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 home ferment side of things uh, in this episode. And I, there's still so much that we could talk about, but we're actually uh, out of time. I'm going to have to go today. But but there there's there's been there's definitely benefits, and we probably didn't touch on it enough. There's there's plenty of benefits and insights that have come from definitely from artisanal foods, but also from uh, large industry scale foods, especially on the science side of things. That uh, you know the economies of scale or or and just more money going towards something. If there's money to be made, there's more research that's going to be done. So there's some a lot of the things that are understood on the science side of things are definitely from the industrial food side of things, be it fermented or not. Yeah, it's just amazing. I mean, yeah, we could talk about home fermentation as well. Just as industrial fermentation, there's an endless array of things to talk about and and whatnot. But if anybody has any um, opinions about home fermentation versus industrial fermentation, they should contact us. Yes. So yeah. So send, send us, send us those, any, any comments or different things that you have about those. I mean, you can go to our show notes and make a comment at the bottom of the show notes page at firmup.com slash podcast slash 39 or on Facebook at firm up or Google plus uh, plus firm up and uh, Twitter at firm up and, uh, or send us an email at podcast at firm up. I'm excited to talk about our next topic, um, which we'll not quite sure what it is, but I'm sure it'll be really interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're actually starting to plan these things out now that we're getting this whole co-host co-host thing down. And I I think our next episode is going to be our our kind of more feast episode of sorts of, of focusing on what kind of ferments can be added as side dishes or otherwise to Thanksgiving and uh, especially Thanksgiving, but any of these holidays coming up uh, in the United States or, or anywhere in the world for any of you listeners that are elsewhere that what, like when getting people together, what kind of things are maybe approachable for others and maybe some kind of crazy um, dishes to, to bring to a feast or for Thanksgiving that some family members might wrinkle their nose at, but at least opening people's eyes to something new. Yeah, I think um, I think that episode's going to be really exciting. Um, but And if anybody has any specific um, suggestions or recipes, yes. Send them our way. Well, hey, there's nothing else. I mean, you know where to contest us anywhere at Firm Up. And until then, Firm Up. <laughs>